way through the Sermon on the Mount, and we've come to verses 27 through 30, a section of Scripture that where Jesus is dealing with a proper interpretation of the Mosaic Law. He's on the mount, on a hill. People, hundreds, maybe possibly thousands of people have gathered around him to hear him teach, and he's giving this authoritative teaching uh, probably the most extended teaching of his ministry. So Ludwig von Beethoven is considered by many one of, if not the, greatest composer who ever lived. He actually began becoming deaf at age 26. By the age of 45, he was completely deaf. Yet he loved music and loved composing so much that he pushed through that deafness and went to great lengths to keep composing the music that he loved. And he, and he came up with some pretty radical ways of doing that. For example, he would clench a, a stick in his mouth with the other end resting on the inside of the piano, and he would play the music trying to discern the faint notes that he was playing. As his deafness progressed, he actually had the legs of his piano sawed off and the piano put on the hardwood floor. And he would lay for hours with his ear against the floor, pounding the notes, trying to figure out if the, if the volume of the notes fit the melody that he had in his head. Beethoven loved music and composing so desperately that he did some very radical things in order to keep composing that which he loved. As I was thinking about that this week and reading the scripture that I was to preach on, I wondered, do I love Christ as much as Beethoven loved music? Am I, or Maybe are you so desperately in love with Christ that like Beethoven, you would do almost anything? Are we willing to be radical to maintain that intimate relationship we have with Christ? Those are just a few of the questions that Christ seems to be asking us in our text this morning. Look with me at verse 27 where Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. If your eye, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, Cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Please pray with me. Father God, send your Spirit to enliven our hearts to hear this teaching, to accept it, 
to hear it rightly and to act on it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as I said before, we're in the midst of a section of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus is not giving new laws. He's not giving new regulations. But he's explaining the depth of the original Mosaic law. That's what he's doing. That the Mosaic law was never intended to control, just control, just manage our exterior and our, and our behaviors. It was never intended that way, to just control the exterior. But to circumcise and sanctify our hearts. That's what Jesus is saying over and over again six times. And here Jesus quotes the seventh commandment from the Word of God in Exodus chapter 20. You have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. Now the common understanding of that day as it is today is that you either commit adultery or you don't. It's a very black and white type of of law. You either committed sexual sin or you haven't. You've either physically cheated on your spouse or you haven't. You've either slept with a person before marriage or you haven't. It was very clear. Now, Jesus will go on in the next few, few sections to talk about the more nuanced laws. But here, just like murder, it seems pretty clear, doesn't it? That law seems pretty clear, pretty straightforward. If a person was faithful to his or her spouse, both within marriage and before marriage they could honestly stand before God and say, I have not sinned. But here Jesus gives us the intent of the law. He goes on and says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery in his heart. Once again, Jesus is opening the Pandora's box of our hearts. Jesus, he is just, just as he has pressed into our heart that murder's root is, is anger, here he is saying that, that adultery's root is lust. It's the same plant. One on the surface, one below the surface. One seen, another unseen. It's the same coin. Just two sides of it. Thus, Jesus is giving us a deeper understanding of adultery here. A deeper understanding of adultery. I think it's wise to, and to be clear at the outset of what Jesus is not saying. What Jesus is not saying here. Jesus is, does not mean looking at a woman or a man admiringly is sin. Just as you can look at a painting or a sculpture and look at it objectively and say, that is a beautiful sculpture. So a person can look at the member of an opposite sex and say, that is a beautiful person. Also, Jesus does not mean that natural opposite sex attraction is sinful. Natural opposite sex attraction is not sinful. God has instilled that in us. That is good to be attracted to a man or a woman and not lust is good. He's also mean, he does not also mean that the first look of a man or a woman is bad. 
But the second look is, the second look is where lust starts. What Jesus is saying here is that when you allow your mind to, to go to the next level, to mull over, to imagine, to lust in the heart. Think about it this way. You wake up tomorrow morning and you, you smell, the house is full of the smell of bacon. You, it's delicious. It's universally one of, the, one of the most appetizing smells in the world. And you're hungry. You just woke up. And you smell this. And as you begin to get dressed, you turn over in your mind. You're thinking about bacon. Is it thick cut or is it thin cut? Is it applewood smoked or is it maple smoked? You begin to picture yourself searching through the pile of bacon, looking for those perfect pieces, not too, not too stretchy, but not burnt. You begin to imagine holding the piece delicately in your hand. You begin to think about the first bites of bacon, those first bites where the, the crisp fat kind of melts in your mouth. And you chew on it, and, and, the, and the smoky goodness just fills your mouth. You mull over in your mind how you're going to combine that taste of bacon with the buttery toast and the eggs. C.S. Lewis humorously wrote, He that looketh on a plate of ham and eggs and lust after it hath already committed breakfast in his heart. That's what Jesus means here. It's thinking about. It's mulling over. It's cherishing. It's imagining. It's the taste before the taste that is lust. And by bringing it to this deeper understanding of the law to light, Jesus is doing two things to our hearts. By taking it to this level, he's doing two things to our hearts. First, he's exposing the deep seed, our deep-seated depravity. He's really bringing to light what our hearts are really like. By saying it's not the exterior, it's the interior. By, by saying if you're to mull it over as to sin, he's saying, listen, you don't understand how deep the sin is going. The people sitting on that hill that day would have been absolutely astounded at this teaching. They, like us, thought they could keep the law. They thought they were okay. They came out to hear Jesus and they thought they were okay. They thought that adultery was only skin deep. That adultery was something that you could manage in your life. I can manage adultery. In fact, that way of thinking is man's fatal flaw, isn't it? Thinking that we can manage sin. That's our fatal flaw. That we can manage our appetites, that we can stop gossiping, that we can, that we can will ourselves to stop swearing or lying. That we can stop our anger. That we can, that we can plug up our pride. That we can push down our judgmentalism. That we can stop looking lustfully. That we can manage that but we can't. What Jesus is saying here, it's too deep. 
The great Princeton theologian Charles Hodge wrote this, Our guilt is great because our sins are exceedingly numerous. It is not merely outward acts of unkindness and dishonesty with which we are chargeable. Our habitual and characteristic state of mind is evil in the sight of God. Our pride, vanity, and indifference to his will and to the welfare of others, our selfishness, our loving the creature more than the creator, our continuous violations of his holy law. We have never been or done what the law requires, requires of us to be or do. We are always sinners. We are at all times and under all circumstances in opposition to God because we are never what his law requires us to be. He concludes by writing this, Our sins are not to be numbered by the, con- by the conscious violations of duty. They are as numerous as the moments of our existence. Now perhaps you're sitting there or sitting at home and saying, uh, Blake, I think you're going a little over the top here. I think it's a little too much. I think you're reading a little too much into this. I think Charles Hodge might have misrepresented. But Hodge is merely putting into modern language what Paul wrote 2,000 years ago in Romans 3. By the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Paul wrote, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. They've all turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave and use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace they have not known. And he concludes by saying, there is no fear of God before their eyes. What Paul and Hodge are saying is, our sin is, is so much more pervasive than we think. And that we will even want to believe. And that's exactly what Jesus is teaching here. He wants us to realize how deep that root goes. And a large part of genuine spiritual maturity is beginning to believe that yourself. Let me say that again. A large part of spiritual maturity is beginning to believe that yourself. Philip Yancey wrote this, which I think is brilliant. The proof of spiritual maturity is not how pure you are, but awareness of your impurity. That very awareness opens the door to grace. Let's unpack this just for a second. First, spiritual maturity is not necessarily gauged by external conformity to the law. Not necessarily gauged by external conformity to the law. You can see this in the, in the Pharisees that were sitting in and around Jesus in that very crowd. They had checked that external box perfectly. They looked like they were the most mature people in Israel. As a matter of fact, Jesus gives them credit for their external conformity in verse 20, just a few minutes before he said these very words in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not get into the kingdom of heaven. 
He's giving them credit for the external conformity that they had. They looked the part. They gave generously. They worshipped religiously. They made their phylacteries long and their tassels wide. They looked the part. But as Jesus goes on to say multiple times in the Gospels, they were spiritually vacuous. See, we have to be careful how we measure spiritual maturity. We have to be careful. We have to be biblical. Not by how much theology you know, although that is great. Not necessarily by how much scripture you have memorized, although that is encouraged. Not by how righteously you live, although that is required. It's not that these are bad indicators. It's just that they fall short of one critical ingredient. And that is poverty of spirit. Jesus told us that right out of the gates here, didn't he? You have to realize that you're morally bankrupt. You have to realize that your sin goes deeper than you think. The humility that is willing to look a little deeper into yourself, a growing awareness of how unrighteous your heart is, that is spiritual maturity. In other words, to use biblical language, a deepening recognition of how far short you fall. A deepening recognition of how far short you fall, Romans. Not just a little, not just a few feet, not a football field away, not a mile away. What the Bible says is we fall as far short as the east is from the west. And the spiritually mature humbly and regretfully nod their head. Walt Whitman, one of the greatest American poets, writes in his famous poem, Crossing Brooklyn Ferry, of his capacity to evil. He writes, I am he who knew what it was to be evil. I too knitted the old knot of contrariety. Blabbed, blushed, resented, lied, stole, grudged had guile, anger, lust, hot wishes, I dare not speak. He recognized it. The proof of spiritual maturity is not how pure you are, but how the awareness of your impurity. And that very awareness opens the door to grace. That's the beauty of this. That's the good news of the gospel. That's the exhale that we have as Christians when we hear all this that crushes us, that pushes us down. Your very awareness of the depth of your sin opens the door to the wonderful grace of God. You see, for the regenerate believer, the depth of your sin causes you to see that however hard you bail, there's more water coming into the boat than there is going out. Lust of the heart causes you to reach the end of yourself. That's where Paul got in his struggle with sin. If you read Romans 7, if you read Romans 7, you see that he was struggling greatly. And he gets to the end of his rope. 
And he says towards the end of that chapter, what a wretched man I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, the awareness of the depth of your impurity causes us to look for relief outside yourself. And brothers and sisters, the end of your rope is a good place to be. It's exactly where Jesus brings the people sitting with him along in, on that hill that day. Because it is only from that awareness that the door of grace flies open. It is only from that awareness that the door of grace begins to fly open. That you turn to the grace and the love and the forgiveness and the acceptance that only Jesus Christ can supply. As Haldor Lilliness wrote in one of my favorite hymns, as a matter of fact, I keep a folder, it's kind of weird, I keep a folder of what I want done at my funeral, and this hymn is in there. The wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin, how shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Taking away my burden, setting my spirit free, the wonderful grace of Jesus reaches me. That's what it's all about. There is the relief. That is the good news, brothers and sisters. The good news that Jesus fulfilled the requirement of purity for us. He never sinned. He never committed adultery in his heart. He never took a second look. He never tasted before he tasted. He never saw each person. He he saw only each person as a stray, lonely, needy, lost sheep made in the image of God. And the good news is that if you trust in Jesus' perfectly lived life, not your attempt, but his perfectly lived life, the acceptance and the standing before God is yours. Awareness of your sin flings open the door of this good news. That Jesus took the penalty for that heart sin of lust that we continually do. But the power of sin is broken in our lives. Because of Christ's death, And by placing your trust in Jesus' death, trusting that he took the penalty for your sin, there's no penalty left for you, brothers and sisters. There's only acceptance and forgiveness and love. God's wrath has been satisfied. That's the promise of the good news that is guaranteed in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That because Christ rose from the dead, those who trust in what Christ did will rise with him. That's what 1 Thessalonians 4 tells us. We, for we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep. We rise with him. We live eternally with him. And that is just not good advice. That's good news. Martin Lloyd-Jones preaching on 1 Corinthians 15, said, 
Advice is counsel about something to do. And it hasn't yet happened, but you can do it. News is a report of something that has happened. You can't do anything about it. It's done for you. And all you have to do is respond to it. He goes on to say, when an invading army breaks through, the king sends back military advisors and, and says, swordsmen over here, marksmen over there, and horsemen over there. We're going to fight for our lives, men. Every other religion sends military advisors. Every other religion says, you know, if you want your salvation, you're going to have to fight for your life for it. Every other religion is sending advice, saying, here are your rights, here are your rituals, here are your laws, here are your regulations, now fight for your life. Only Christianity brings good news. The war has been won. Imagine standing on a battlefield and you know you're going into a fierce battle, but a person, a messenger, a herald comes to you and says, the war is over. You might still have to go into that battle, but you go into that battle in a totally different mind frame, don't you? Knowing That knowing allows for joy, even in the midst of the most heinous battles. And there are still battles to be fought, brothers and sisters, like the battle of lust right here. And in verses 19, or 29 and 30, Jesus urges us to take that battle seriously. That's the second thing that Jesus is teaching us here. Take the battle seriously. He writes, if your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Now some took this literally. Like the church father Origen, who emasculated himself in the third century. But the council of Nicaea in the fourth century rejected this as a, as a proper interpretation of this. It's not to be taken literally. I think that's pretty obvious that this is not to be taken literally, that Jesus is speaking figuratively and hyperbolically here. Just sitting here and just thinking about it for a second, taking out your eye or, or cutting off your hand is not going to stop your heart from lusting. It's not going to stop it. You could be totally blind and be a terribly lustful person. So what does Jesus mean here? I think the first thing he's telling us is that sexual sin is so damaging to us spiritually that we should do everything in our control to stop it. Do everything in our control to stop it. Kent Hughes comments here saying, Jesus is teaching that anything that stands between us and him must be ruthlessly even savagely torn out or cut off or thrown away. Drastic measures are always appropriate to protect our spiritual health. You see, lust as adultery has, has spiritual implications. That is actually what Paul is writing to the Corinthians about in, in the sixth chapter. He's writing to them and saying, listen, adultery has, has spiritual 
implications. It's serious. He gives four reasons for that there. He says, because our bodies are eternal, for one thing. This isn't just a throwaway. These, these bodies that you have right now will be reconstituted into glorified bodies. He says also that our bodies, are the, the, these are not our own bodies. We don't own these bodies. He says right there in verses 19 and 20, chapter 6, they are bought with a price, the price of Jesus' own blood. Thirdly, that our bodies are housing God himself. That they're a temple of the Holy Spirit. That God resides in the believer. That's pretty heavy, as they used to say in the 60s. But lastly, as you come together physically, you're also coming together spiritually, he says. That there's this one fleshness that's happening And that's all happening spiritually as we lust, brothers and sisters. That explains why Jesus is using such extreme language here. And it's extreme language, wouldn't you agree? Gouging your eye out, cutting your hand off. 17th century pastor William Grinnell wrote, God would not rub so hard if it were not to fetch out the dirt that is ingrained in our natures. God loves purity so well that he would rather see a hole than a spot in his child's garments. Isn't that wonderful? And Jesus is rubbing pretty hard here, brothers and sisters, isn't he? So what is it that facilitates your lust? Is it your smartphone? Gouge and get a flip phone. Or cut and get rid of the phone altogether. Is it your computer? Gouge and put some software on it that'll that'll help you. They'll prohibit you from going to those sites. Or cut and get rid of the computer altogether. Women, is it romance novels? Gouge and never buy one again. Or cut and get rid of the library of them that you have. Perhaps it's video games that tempts you to lust. Gouge and get rid of them. Or better yet, cut and get rid of the Xbox or the PlayStation altogether. What is it in, the, in our culture that tempts you to lust? Is it the provocative ads on ESPN and Facebook? Is it the movies or the TV programs? Our culture is absolutely chocked full of temptation where this is concerned. We live in a sexually charged culture and it's hard to live counterculturally. I get that. It's hard to live counterculturally. But what Jesus is saying here is it's better to be a cultural amputee than to risk your eternal salvation. So do whatever it takes Whatever is in your control. And then pray that the Holy Spirit will do the rest. Because, brothers and sisters, we cannot change our hearts. Change doesn't go outside in, it's inside out. 
We can't stop our hearts from lusting. But the Holy Spirit can. The Holy Spirit can. You're not alone in this battle. You remember when Jesus was in the upper room, he told his disciples that I'm not leaving you as orphans. He was, he was letting them know that he's not going to leave them alone. He's going to send the Holy Spirit. And that whole upper room discourse is just threaded with this promise of this coming Holy Spirit that is going to be your paraclete, your counselor, your guide, your helper. You're not alone in this battle. God resides in each and every believer. And his promise is, I will slowly but progressively change your heart. And here Jesus is saying, grasp the hand of the Holy Spirit and do whatever's in your control to stop the temptation. In other words, take this battle seriously. Take drastic steps. Be radical in how you approach lust. Because this kind of radical, drastic, countercultural sacrifice actually shows Jesus Christ that you love him. Actually shows that you love him. You see, just as the outward acts of adultery reflect a heart that is already adulterous, the outward act of forsaking whatever is harmful reflects a heart that hungers and thirsts after righteousness, a mark of a true believer. And that's one of the Beatitudes. That's who we are. Hunger and thirst for righteousness is a mark of a person who loves Jesus Christ. So, I return to my original questions. Do I love Christ as much as Beethoven loved music? Am I so desperately in love with him that like Beethoven, I would do almost anything? Are we willing to be radical to keep our intimate relationship with Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your Holy Spirit that we can actually grasp the hand of and participate in our own sanctification, participate in changing our hearts. Help us to do that. Help us to to love you so much that we're willing to give up everything, anything for you. In Jesus' name, amen.